We are I. So last time that we got together, we talked a lot about ancient Chinese culture. Today, we're going to talk a lot about uh, traditional uh, Indian culture. But I want to start off like what we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago with yin and yang. And why do people always say yang, not yang? Is that just uh, people trying to say it the way that it's spelt? Um, and like the, the feminine and masculine side, which one is which? Um, and why is that never really talked about? So, welcome. Let's get right into it. All right. The yin and yang, I think it's just because, um, like in English, we read yang as yang. Mm-hmm. Normal for us to read it that way, like tang and yang, you know. Um, but it's yang. Um, and that is the more formless, energetic of the Chinese tradition. And the yin is the more tangible, um, material energetic or, uh, substance actually. So form and so formlessness and substance. And they're in the, the, the Tai Chi symbol. And there's a little bit of the yang in the yin, and there's a little bit of the yin and the yang and the symbol is a circle. And outside of the circle is like, spaciousness mm-hmm. or void, and the two are actually in that circle and they're they're like that little paisley shape and that's because they're supposed to be like it, it's supposed to look like it's representing movement because they're not static so they're constantly moving constantly searching for balance and in that process the friction is created and that's where chi emanates mm. from vitality and it's very much similar to the indian concept of prakriti and of purusha and prakriti so um the purush is the formlessness the spaciousness before everything manifested and the prakriti is the substance and um, those two are always in a dance with each other. And so in both traditions, the substance is the more feminine. So the yin or the prakriti is more feminine. And the formlessness is more masculine. And that is the yang or the purusha. And, and too, like that's not necessarily like feminine and masculine in like the traditional sense of like man and woman. It's more of like... Like, is it more like emotional state or like, or is it more as in what we traditionally would define that as in like uh, feminine woman, masculine man? Well, so in yin-yang theory, it depends on the context. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, it would be more like, which is more receptive and dark and cold and which is more active and, um, light and hot mm-hmm. and yeah. then you take those in any context and what might be 
young in one context, you need to refine the thinking of in another. Mm-hmm. Has, like, like, do we know or are we aware like, of, like, this concept of, like, yin and yang? Like, was it ever challenged? Like, is there any, like, um, doctrines out there or, like, any, um, you know, like, different ways of things, thinking that, like, really challenge, like, the theory of yin and yang and chi? Not that I know of. Do you find that fascinating? Because I couldn't find anything either where, like, because I actually, I looked at it and I'm, and like with anything, you would assume that at some point in time, somebody would have came up with this alter idea. Like, that just seems like it's a part of like human nature. But I couldn't find anything. Like, what makes me think of Plato's forms or what we would talk about in Eastern philosophy is like absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Like once you, once you strip away all of the attachment and aversion and, and you can boil something down to its fundamental nature, then there's no argument with it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what people have come to as the truth. So, and we may not, like with Plato's forms, he, Plato talked about how the, the concept of something was like actually like so far beyond our grasping that even our like most amazing um, thoughts and feelings about something and ideals of something, regardless of whether it's tangible or an intangible concept, like it's it's like so much beyond our grasp that what we actually have here on this planet and in our minds is a very rudimentary form of that like ideal that's like encapsulated in some other time and space that we can't really access mm-hmm. with our um, bodies and our minds, although we aspire to. Seeing that because as soon as you say that, like my my immediate reaction is like. But what if we found out one day that we were the pinnacle of thought and consciousness? But like, because we have the ability to have thought and consciousness, that we think that there should be more than what we can then perceive. But well, now we're getting into what is consciousness, right? We're not talking about yin and yang now. We're yeah. not talking about qualities and polarities. What we're talking about is what is consciousness. Mm-hmm. And even in quantum physics, there's a recognition that we are both those things at the same time. So there's this paradox. It just depends on, again, similar to yin and yang, what context you're looking at it, what lens you're looking at it through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as, as manifestations of the universe and nature, technically we are, we are the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> man, to think that like we're the pinnacle, especially right now, I can't help but laugh thinking about that right now yeah, at this point in time, more, right? It's more of the potential. Yeah. You know, I I watched something. I saw something yesterday, and, and somebody had drawn uh, in Sharpie or something a black circle on this huge piece of paper, and this little tiny ant was inside the circle, and it would come up to the edge of the circle. And it would turn around and go back, and then it would go to another edge, and it like it was confined within this circle, which was completely not a boundary. Yeah, it was completely not a boundary. Eventually, it walked out of the circle, 
but the circle was just ink on the paper. The circle wasn't like a container, mm -hmm. but to the ant, it felt like a container mm -hmm. and that's all it could see, you know? And I think that we're like that too. Oh, I think our, our, our brains, I think most people really look at, they're just like, there's far more, there's far more barriers. There's far more black circles than there is a limitless amount of possibility. Yeah. Um, do you see, cause this also makes me think too, that do you think it was easier for people to be content or maybe people just wanted to be more content? Because if we sped this up into today's present, if you had this concept of like, well, we don't need to think anything past this because this is, you know, like this, this idea, like we've kind of got there, we've got to this way of thinking, we've got to this way of life and people should be content. Like you would never be able to manifest that today, even like how hard people try. But when you go back into like some of these traditional cultures where it was like, they were just seemed like they were content. If there was nothing that challenged like yin and yang, if there was nothing that challenged chi, if like people got to this point where, place where there's like, okay, well, this, this makes sense. Like, you know, we're good here. We don't have to go too far past this. Um, is that even achievable today? Or can we just glorify the past? That, that comes back to that same question every time. I, yeah, I think we glorify the past quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I think people have always been the same. I just think that the amount of disordered mental activity at this time is substantial mm -hmm. probably compared to the past because we have so many distractions especially in our cultures right because there, there's i mean there's always been things that people have wanted people have always needed and wanted food and water and you know to live in the palace and to have nice clothes and to have shoes but now we've got all all those things like in our culture we kind of take for granted mm -hmm. and then there's all this other stuff you know and it's it's just there's it's so much it seems compared to what there was in the past yeah and social media and you know maybe the influencers used to be the king and queen and the court jester and now it's like thousands and thousands of people who take your pick any given day of the week so it's just it's crazy. It's, it's yeah. Like, do you think that mental health issues are, are a relatively new concept? No. Do you think people have always been dealing with mental health issues? Because it just seems like, or maybe like it's just more talked about now or we've defined it more now? Oh, we've, we've definitely defined it more now. And we've... So... Even in like Buddhism and, and yoga teachings, the mind is what's always referenced in terms of the mind and the emotions, right? So it's always been just the mind. People haven't t talked about the emotions even. They, they didn't use the word emotions when they were talking about, you know, self-cultivation in the ancient teachings. And so... You know, you mentioned menstruation as being a taboo in the beginning of the call. And I think to some extent, like some of the emotional stuff has been taboo too. I mean, particularly in certain cultures. And 
I mean, think about it. If you're a young girl who's getting married away at nine or 14 years old, has to leave her family, has to go live with some, you know, mean in-laws that are beating you and making you clean the whole house all the time and have babies, like, I don't see any way that person isn't going to have clinical depression, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's always been there. It's just been, it's just not been emphasized as being important or it's been in certain people's interest to not address it. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a lot of reasons for it. Or maybe also because as you're talking about yin and yang, like the yin is associated with the water element. And the water element is associated with the moon and with the emotions. And the yin or the feminine has been stifled and continues to be in many ways around the world. Um, and particularly in, in specific traditional cultures. So, you know, that I think plays a role as well. Yeah, because like that, this goes back to something that I, I said that I wanted to kind of touch on today too, is that so the more, the more harmonious we live our lives, the more that I believe that we can identify with our, the emotions that we're feeling and they become more present and more aware and they become a greater driver in our lives. Now, the more unharmonious our lives are, the more callous we become and the more disassociated we come with our emotions, um, having like that kind of cold, callous, post-war like, you know, mentality, like there's just, there's no, there's no give, you know, like there's no love. Um, why it, it is it i guess is is it um efficient for us to live our our lives in like that harmonious very emotional emotionally connected state or do we eventually lead ourselves down a bad road if we're too emotionally driven in leading our lives well there are many world leaders who are emotionally driven living their lives. Yeah. But they're doing it in not the way that you need, I think. Like you're talking about like someone who is in tune and connected with their emotions and not stifling things. Well, I, yeah, I kind of, sorry. I just to kind of clarify so you can clarify your thought. I, I think it's because even if our world is in disarray right now, like there, it's the easiest of like what our world could be and what it really, I guess, theoretically ever has been. So there's a certain amount of harmony, maybe a wrong terminology. Maybe I'm thinking ease and like with ease, there's a certain amount of harmony, but it creates this emotionally driven state now where like it creates conflict that doesn't have a virtuous ending. You know, like conflict is in, I'm hungry, I need to go find food, I need to go forage, like that has a very virtuous ending to it. Conflict is in like, I'm just gonna fight with people on Twitter because it's really easy for me to sit at home and play on my $1,200 phone that's connected to the internet. There's no real virtue behind that. Maybe that's kind of what I'm thinking of. Yeah, 
like and that's what i meant in the, in the beginning is that i think the minds and the emotions are actually like out of control yeah um the mind is just that i mean even like simple concepts at least one that I valued growing up was having respect for your elders. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that. I, I see it rarely, but I don't see it a lot. You know, and, and just having respect for people in general. See, and I think I had a, a proxy conversation about this yesterday. And I think it's because People feel the younger generation now feels like they're an expert in everything. And not only do they feel like they're an expert in everything, they should be getting paid the salary of the person who is that the expert at that something. And the reason why I say that is because if you value, like when we value our elders and we value, you know, like people to our senior, it's because we understand that they have a contribution to our lives. But I don't think that most of the younger generation now look at people saying that there's a contribution to this older generation, this people to their senior, that they've lived some life. So let me teach you about life because life that they only see is right in front of them. And it just is very immediate. So like there's, there's kind of like air quotes, no need to be able to sit down and have those lasting conversations with your elders. And if you don't think there's value to them, what's your respect attached to? Because, you know, like respect is usually attached to value. Um, and if you don't think that they have value, how are you ever going to respect them? Well, then therein lies a huge issue. And well, how will anyone even have empathy if you don't feel as though other living beings have the same value as you? Yeah. Well, so, that's what, a problem. that is a problem. And like, and I think in a, in a, in the only form that I can see this consistently still being applicable in today's day and age, really at a more rudimentary level, is tradesmen. You know, because you don't really have a choice but to join a trade and become an apprentice, and you have to learn from somebody your senior. And you under they you understand that they have a lot of little tricks in of the trade to be able to to teach you. So there still is that kind of mutual respect and, and that honor that's built through that system. But when you scale outside of that and how few people are getting into that environment to be able to learn how valuable that is and then to teach that to another generation or to people just in their social network because you know like all that you've really heard for what maybe the last 20 years is you know be independent be a free thinker you know do all these things but I feel like that that's kind of been like a really significant disconnect in saying well, why don't you sit down with somebody, you know, who's 20, 30 years your senior and just like pick their mind, which is what the one thing that I love about, you know, just getting in conversations with people. It's like, like, how do you think? Like, like, what do you think? Because all those things along the way help fine tune me in the way that I think and how I'm going to interpret the world. And the reason why that I specifically don't like to get in a lot of conversations with people who think very much like me, because then I just sit in you know, my little echo chamber and think that this is life and it's not life. And the reason why that I love to travel to be able to see um, new things and experience new things, because like I recognize and I understand that value. And I think a lot of that is like growing up on a farm because, you know, like you have to learn from people you're seeing. You're like, you have to learn from your dad. You have to learn from your grandpa. And like, you know, you have to learn from your mom and your grandma. Like you just, 
you don't have a choice. There's too many complex things to try to micromanage any one of those things on your own and think that you're just going to learn by osmosis in that situation. Like some of it is, but you actually need somebody to sit down and teach you like, this is why you should maybe do these things this way, which is, I, I don't, I don't see any forum really where that happens at all. Like I could probably pull a hundred people. I know about how many, when was the last time they sat down with like their parent or a grandparent, if they still had one around and just ask them for life advice or just talk to them about life. Like I, even as adults, I think that's rare. Never mind like the children of, of this day and age. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Froze up there for a second, but I got you back now. So um, that what you just said about when you have when you have to when you're learning a trade and you're an apprentice and you have a mentor, they're showing you the ropes that you can't necessarily show yourself. And then you can think outside the box after you learn that foundational stuff, right? Then you can make fancy blades when you're a blacksmith or whatever it is. But um, you mentioned refining or changing or should we alter like yoga, for example. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something that popped in my head when you were talking because it feels to me that there is that huge disconnect with her and the heads of their lineages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe this is a, a good segue into like what, what we were talking about before we started recording is just like where yoga started, like why those poses were created. And, you know, because you do have all these new self-proclaimed yoga experts, um, you know, creating new poses and doing new things. And like what you mentioned, challenging the ways of the past and whether this is still applicable for us to do these traditional poses, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like um, where, why did they start? Like, why was it those poses, you know, in the beginning, why are they still applicable today? And, you know, why is it a disservice if people are trying to steer the yoga thought process away from those? I think it also comes down to your values. What are you doing it for? Mm -hmm. So yoga was originally taught, from, at least from the people that I studied with, this is what the information I've gleaned, that yoga was originally taught as a way to purify the nadis or the meridians or, and the channels of the body so that one could handle sitting for long periods of time comfortably in meditation and then also handle whatever came up during the meditation practice in one's mind. And the mind is also the emotional body. And so if those channels were not flexible and insulated enough, then there was a very good chance of a person misinterpreting the experiences they were having, stopping 
at a point that was detrimental to do so because it would leave them with a, a kind of a derangement and understanding reality. And worst case scenario actually makes someone go crazy. Mm-hmm. And so the yoga poses were, that's what they were there for. And um, like one of my teachers in India, Mr. Angar, he's in the Ashtanga yoga lineage and, or Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga, I should say. And he said, you know, you do your sun salutation after you get through second series, which is the forward bends and the back bends. Your practice then becomes you get through your sun salutations because you've purified the channels enough that you just need to kind of warm your body up and then sit down and meditate and do your pranayama practice and that's it. Mm-hmm. So it ends up not being anything about you know, pretzel poses or whatever, it ends up being about, you know, the discipline and the, and the cleansing of the internal subtle system of the body, um, so that you can handle the meditation practice. And so now that's not really, and, and traditionally also like people didn't practice in large groups. Part of that cleansing process is to get the phlegm out of your head to, and out of your chest, to get, you know, the extra excrement out and to get the gases out of your gut. Like, you don't want to be, like, right next to somebody on a mat who's coughing up phlegm and has noxious gas, right? Like, that's definitely, that's for you on your own. It's not, I mean, the whole way been taught has changed so much and the value I think on the original intention is lost because it's just become something that's fun for people and that's not necessarily the greatest thing in the world either because you can really hurt yourself doing yoga and I have clients who have you know because they're not executing your poses properly for their body at that time and then they end up with a shoulder injury and then they can't do most they can't do nine tenths of the yoga classes on the planet anymore Mm -hmm. at least a long time or they've screwed up their si joint or whatever it is for me so i i feel important for people to know what the roots and the foundations of a practice are, whether it's a medical practice or um, a blacksmithing practice or a yoga practice. It's, and that maybe is, is, you know, partly what you're talking about with the younger generation too. And it's that there's not that wisdom, you know, there's the immediate knowledge, but there's not like the foundational information there's not the wisdom that goes with that foundational information and it seems to me that the original teachers of these systems whether it's a kung fu or a Taoist practice or qigong or yoga that they didn't like just go on out and and market their abilities and what they their knowledge and their wisdom because they knew that immature minds we're going to take it and run. And that's 
in my opinion, that's exactly what I think is happening. Well, yeah, like I, I think it's like a combination between corporations and businesses recognizing the profitability behind kind of like the yoga movement, um, you know, and then how quickly people deem themselves to be an expert, you know, where like then they can start teaching their way, putting their style. And like, that's what our world really represents now is, you know, putting your tone, your style, your edge on things because it's your brand and people like your brand better because you do things this way. But we really lost the true value and the understanding of, of a lot of the reason why, you know, and this is something that I wrote down, like, as you're, you're talking and I, I come back to this very principle multiple times during my life. Well, I should say routinely during my life multiple times. Do you think that we've lost the beauty and simplicity? I think it's still there. And I think some people focus on it. Um, and perhaps not many people that focus on it have an Instagram account with a lot of followers. But this is the thing. And like, that's what's steering what people think, you know, yoga is because, you know, like when I was listening to the gentleman talk about um, yoga, which prompted me to ask this question, you know, about like the very, like the traditional poses, the meaning behind them, the reasons why. And it was, you know, he was explaining it is, it was this, this search of oneself to be able to see where attention needs to be brought to. You know, what do I feel in this post? What's the discomfort? How can I work this discomfort out? Even like what you alluded to, or like it might even help stimulate certain bodily processes from happening, you know, excreting mucus, gas buildup, like all these kind of things. But like, I don't think that either one of those two concepts at uh, all the yoga classes that I've been to, or just the, the amount of people that I know who are in that industry, ever really talk about either one of those when it seems like that's the thing that should be routinely talked about. And like, this is the reason why we're doing this. This is the search of oneself. And if you can connect to be able to search your body for these things, it's going to enhance your experience as a human being to be able to allow you to be able to search into, you know, your mind, your emotions, your spirit, to be able to understand where there may be issues or flaws that you need to be able to work out in those areas too. But, and I think you alluded to that, like, this is just, this is a gateway. This is a portal. These poses are a portal to be able to understand the physical body, which is going to help connect you with the different realms of, you know, the human experience as well. Yeah. And the different, there's different poses named after different animals or there's poses. So they, so they help one to, embody that energetic of that totem animal or named after different stages by people so that you are then having the intention to emulate the wisdom within yourself of that great sage mm -hmm. when you practice the pose like the names of these things the names of the acupuncture points they're not by accident do you think that this helps us? So dialing back to what we were just talking to you before, um, do you think this helps us build that respect for one another when when we take the time out to consciously think about something that is not us? 
you know, whether with doing these yoga poses, you think about the different animals that are associated with the poses, you think about the different wisdom that's attached to the different yogis, you know, the different poses, and what because you have to stop and think about them. And, you know, you understand them, you know, the names, you know, the intention behind it, you're being taught about the intention behind it. So you learn a greater understanding and respect for these things, because you feel a certain connection with this, because it's something that you do routinely, you talk about routinely. And then you probably want to investigate those things a little bit further because you're going to develop an attachment to these things and understand like, well, what is there more to this? Who can I go to for understanding? Who can I go to, you know, for, you know, like differing opinions? Who can I go to for a different thought process? How can I learn more? And then that's what helps develop respect for one another, which I guess is a foundation of exactly the reason why that we talk all the time. Because I tell you, I really value and I respect like your opinions and the knowledge that you have. And I'm curious and I want to know more. And you're a great outlet for me because I receive your information very well, very well because I respect you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I find that these, like it, it's an interesting topic that I talk to quite a bit, a few people with is, um, does a younger generation have the ability to be able to respect anything outside of themselves? Or do enough is maybe what we should, uh, what we should say. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's few and far between and much that it's quiet here in my little town in upstate New York. Yeah. Which I find in, I look at these things kind of like speeding them up and, not to go too political, but it's the two, two of the leaders in this world that we talk about the most these days are both TV personalities, Zelensky and Trump. And that's what we start to think. And like, that's what politics are associated with. And now because that, that way has been paved, what does that mean like, when does a YouTube star become president of the United States? Because you know it's inevitable now. And there's going to be other countries where, like, you know, there's been, and I know in India that there's been, like, actors, um, you know, singers and stuff that, you know, have, have run and wanted to kind of get into that political sphere and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be prevalent in other countries as well. But I just find that, like, you know, it's ironic you know, that Zelensky and Trump, you know, are just you know, the last like 10 years or eight years have just been like, we've just been hammered with both of them. And they're both very big, you know, uh, TV moguls who happen to be billionaires and just understand how to be able to manipulate messages. And you know, like, I, I don't see how we respect that kind of leadership because it's not actual real leadership. It's more just you know, playing on these like snippets of time to be able to leverage people's opinions. So to be able to gain votes, but like, we don't actually like, what do we learn from these people? You know, and like, what do we learn from somebody who, well, yeah, but like, again, like how small is the population of people who's learning not to be like that versus the people who are all like, wow, you know, if I really want to be something like this is how I have to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to, because now, like after we talked about this before um, we started recording, I actually got kind of curious because I didn't, didn't know this, but um, I asked you the question, uh, with all ancient cultures, they're associated with pyramids. 
except for India. But then you told me that a lot there is a lot of pyramid-like structures in India. Um, what do pyramids mean uh, to Indian culture, the traditional Indian culture? Um, why do you think it was pyramid form, or like why does it seem like all um, ancient cultures associated with pyramids? Um, so, well, the pyramid, I think people associated, people look to the sky. Um, it's, it's got such magic and potential to it, right? And mystery. And many ancient uh, philosophies or religions taught that the gods came from heavens. And so, to, you know, my, my original thinking is that, you know, the pyramid is a way up from the earth to the heavens. And it's symbolic of, of having a foundation and then coming to a, a pinnacle. Um, but also the pyramid structure itself has a very energetic quality in that it, um, it pulls down energy to its its base or to anything that's underneath it. Mm -hmm. And if it was turned upside down, it would be pulling energy up out of the ground and out toward the sky. So mm -hmm. that, that it's turned the way it is, obviously, so it can stand there. But it's, it's actually like harnessing and drawing chi or prana down to the earth from mm -hmm. the sky. Yeah, I, just, I find it so fascinating, especially considering like nowadays, you know, like with obviously the Great Pyramids that we're just we're fascinated at how like that engineering ever took place, like how stones were moved, you know, how how they were placed with such precision, you know, and it's all cultures. It's like everybody knew this and it challenges me in the way that I think it's like, well, if they all knew this except for us right now, I find that to be so perplexing. It puts me in like a little bit of a thought spiral because then you get into this like, well, how much of everything do we not know? Because if we can't figure these things out now that happened thousands and thousands of years ago, but they all knew. It was like, it was simple technology for them. It was, you wouldn't even think to it. It would be like, how do you build a treehouse today? Well, everybody could fundamentally build a treehouse. And it seemed like all these cultures who had presumably very little interaction with each other all created these massive, massive pyramids with distinct precision. Like, how do you think they pulled it off? And how, why can't we pull it off now? I don't honestly know how they pulled it off. There are some theories about using sound technology. Mm -hmm. And that the vibrational energy could actually lift the structures um, into place. I, I don't know how they did it. I, I assume, first of all, they did have the engineering and the mathematical skills to conceive of how it should be done. And then they also had probably a lot of people at their disposal that... Uh, were probably not treated very well, <laughs> mm -hmm. that they needed to work really hard in order to get a lot of those things, you know, mined and shaped and transported and then into place. Mm -hmm. So, See, it's interesting that you bring up the sound technology because 
I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with, you know, them using sound technology to be able to place those stones and what that looked like. And then I thought, well, because there's that one pyramid that I think that's in South America or, or Mexico, Central South America, where, you know, like you can yell into it and the sound of a bird comes out. Um, and like, no matter from how far away, like, yeah, if you Google it, it's super that's fascinating. Very, very yeah. Yeah, and you know, from like from a very far distance, if you yell at this thing, like the sound of a bird comes out, like immediately, like it, it's wild, it'll blow your mind. Um, but I was like, okay, well, obviously that was built for that reason, or maybe a reason very similar to that. Um, and then if they used sound technology to be able to build these, and we do know that they depending on how you look at it, they do kind of look like um, like satellite dishes of the old old school variety. Um, were they or could have they sent, you know, sound waves into outer space, you know, like with these things, could they have had contact with, you know, other life forms and stuff you like using these things? Like, you know, my mind kind of goes into this, like, what are the possibilities with these things because we know really fundamentally so little about them because, you know, we do know like the traditional way of thinking was that it was forced labor that built, especially the great pyramids. But now they found out that it, there was actually a lot of very skilled labor and that these people were eating very well. So then it leads me to believe there's probably a combination of both people. There was like, just like right now you have your skilled trades people and then you have like your laborers and like, obviously the laborers, aren't living as good as what the skilled tradesmen are. And like, that's probably more these scenarios. But again, it's like these things that like, once we think we know something else comes along where we find out that we have actually very little idea of what is going on or like why these were built or what the purpose was in the first place. Because even now they're finding that in Mexico, they just found that whole new city in Mexico City, where they were doing that excavation and stuff, you know, trying to build a new sub or suburb or, you know, and then, you know, in the Amazon rainforest, they know using that LIDAR technology that there's cities all over the Amazon that they didn't even, weren't even aware of and like how vast these networks are. So like to think like that these were simple pyramids, and I, I think we might be getting lost in the actual physical structure is so perplexing to us to how they were built. I think like the real perplexing aspect of it is maybe like what a lot of these were really used for, you know, right. or what they could have been used for if these people had been around a little bit longer. Yeah. I don't know. I'm very fascinated by it. Like, it yeah, I've always was fascinated by pyramids, but I, I think because there's so many so much better delivery systems of information now. I'm like, wow, I'm like, I wish somebody would have taught me some of these things when I was younger, because I might have taken a totally different trajectory in my life. Because it's really easy to get fascinated by some of these things nowadays, because there's a lot of really great, um, a lot of great ways to deliver the information, but also the people who are delivering the information now teach it in a very fascinating way, not a real dry history ancient kind of like where you're just tuning it out the whole time like i get really captivated hearing some of these passionate people speak on it mm -hmm. yeah all right i'm gonna throw you under the bus now bridge i've been kind of warming you up for the last like 45 minutes to get to this uh get to this point so okay. 
this article that I have pulled up <laughs> on the computer here. So again, we did this with uh, traditional Chinese culture. We're going to do it with traditional Indian culture now. Um, just a brief description on here, just to kind of set the foundation. Um, India is an amalgamation of diff many different communities with multiple religions, ethnicities, views, opinions, customs, languages, cultures, and traditions. While the country is known for some of the most brilliant scientific minds in the world, as well as advanced technology, it's also home uh, to people who live lives um, and are all about a traditional Indian culture and way of life. So 12 unique Indian traditions and customs still being practiced today. Are you ready? Ready. Pacifying the rain gods and frog weddings. All over the world, various ethnicities perform different rituals to appease the rain gods. Few, however, are quite as unique as the ones performed in India. Here, frogs are married in a traditional Hindu wedding ceremony with the hope it'll appease the rain gods and innate uh, or initiate the onset of rains. The ritual is performed when the monsoon season, usually between June and September, is delayed, leading to a fear of drought in the largely agricultural nation. Before the ritual, a male frog is named Varun, the god of water, and the female frog is named Varsha, um, named after the monsoon or rainy season. The practice is so ingrained in the Indian culture and tradition that is found across the country in multiple states like Assam, Maharatha, butchered that, and uh, parts of Karnataka. 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 In some parts of the country, the marriage of other animals like dogs and donkeys in a bid to please the rain guards, gods is also common. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty harmless. Pretty harmless. Um, but again, so I should context this all of like how I did with like the traditional Chinese ones where it's, do we loot, does it, does the methodology of like the very sound, very credible practices, do they get skewed when then people think of like, well, these practices came by way of people who marry frogs and name them in a Hindu temple. You know, like, like it, it does that come into it? Because like, like I said, like this all comes back down to the context where like, I wish that uh, an Eastern way of life and Eastern methodologies had a more relative presence in our Western world. Because I think there's a great combination between the two to find a harmonious way to live life. Uh, I'm going to butcher this, so you're going to have to correct this for me. Uh, Timothy, T-H-I-M-I-T-H-I. Okay. Or fire walking is one of the less bizarre yet unique Indian traditions and is celebrated every year in October and November in honor of Draupadi, the wife of the fire... Pandava brothers in the epic Mahabharata. Uh, this festival originated in the Tamil Nadu and has also spread to other countries that have a large South Indian population. While in some parts of the world, a walk across a bed of fire sometimes done to show um, as a show of overcoming one's fear or to show off extraordinary strength. 
in Tamil Nadu and countries like Sri Lanka, Singapore, Malaysia, Fiji, parts of South Africa and other countries. Uh, Timothy is a reenactment of Draupadi's walk across a bed of fire to prove her innocence after the Kurushetra battle. Karush, Karushitra, Karushitra? Oh, I'm so terrible. Yeah, that. I'm, sure, I'm forgetting how to say it, yeah. but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. This ritual is observed in the village where Draupadi is considered a village deity to seek her blessings. Male devotees walk across a stretch of burning coal while balancing a pot of milk or water on their heads. It is to believe that those who perform this act will be granted a wish or blessing by the goddess. Mm. I'm just like, there. these are in sequence. Of like, we're going to get into some pretty interesting stuff here coming up. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Kill or Be Killed Festival, Bani Festival, Adra Pradesh. Held by the Devarguda, by the Devarguda Temple in Adra Pradesh, Colonel during... Dashara, oh my, I'm just butchering these so bad. Uh, the Bani festival is celebrated by Hindu devotees and is considered among the truly bizarre Indian traditions. Every year, hundreds of devotees from Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka uh, gather with lathis, which is sticks, at the temple and hit each other over the head. This festival, which takes place at midnight, is held to commensurate Mala... Malashawara's killing of a demon. The ritual where men hit each other over the head takes place at midnight when the idols of the deities of Malama and Malashawara Swami, a reincarnation of Lord Shiva, are brought out of the temple in a procession. The men, most of whom are farmers, continue the uh, ritual till dawn. Even if they are covered in blood, Medics are present to aid those who are injured. Police personnel are also deployed at the scene. However, they are limited uh, to being audience members as sen uh, sentiments regarding the rituals run high. So hitting each other over the head with sticks for at least four or five hours um, covered in blood. What do you think of that? I know. I thought it was interesting if it was him conquering a demon, why people now would be doing that to themselves. Is, and is it, or, cause I thought it was not very clear about what it was doing when they were hitting each other over the head. They were only doing it as a representation of this man conquering this demon, but is it a way of, Maybe that's how it killed the, he killed the demon. Mm -hmm. But it's like, do you see the amount of TBI that would come from something like that? Like, you think that there would be yeah. just massive traumatic brain injury. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. Um, among the most, or sorry, number four, drop your baby for good luck. Baby tossing. Among the most bizarre Indian traditions, 
It involves the tossing of babies from rooftops, an annual ritual that has been practiced by both Hindus and Muslims in India for over 700 years. Practice in Baba Umar Darga near Maharshatra and at the Sirsantiswar temple near um, Indi Karnataka. It is a ritual where babies are shaken and dropped by an experienced devotee of the shrine from a height of around 30 to 50 feet and caught in a sheet stretched and held tight by a group of men standing below. The infants are then immediately returned to the parents. This practice carried throughout, carried out throughout the year is believed to bring the child and its family prosperity, good luck, and health. Having three children, I don't know if I would throw any of them from a 30 or a 50 foot building, um, no matter how much luck it brought me out of the sheer fear that something would happen to them that would be counterintuitive. Yeah. I I'm doing such a bad job of these names. They're so hard to pronounce when you're looking at them from like a white person who knows English. And this is part of the reason why the whole thing about yoga hasn't been passed down well, because people don't even want to go to classes where the teachers are saying the post names in Sanskrit. I actually, I do notice that too. It seems like, like most things, like when you're educated, you, you learn kind of like the lingo of your trade. And then as soon as people get out of school, it clearly defines the professionals and the people who are just doing it because all the lingo just gets tossed out the door, you know, for like people who are just kind of doing it for the sake of doing it. Yeah, sometimes when people say a name in English, I don't even know what the hell post they're talking about because they've actually changed the name of the animal that the post was. Yeah. That's so funny. Eh? Well, like, it's funny and it's not funny all, all at the same time, but it's like, exactly. it just, exactly. it, it, and I guess too, then there's always like the argument, as long as people are doing something that there's, is better than doing nothing. But like when you're looking at it from like the roots of it, yeah. Um, taming the raging bull at the cost of your own life. Well, maybe would, while many would choose to run away from a raging bull, Jelakatu, one of the most bizarre traditions in India calls for its participants not only to face, but to also tame a raging bull. This dangerous sport is followed in Tam Tamil Nadu as a part of Pongal, a South Indian harvest festival celebrations. Hundreds of men chase a bull through a narrow passageway and try to grab the prize that is fixed to its horns by clinging onto the animal. This sport is one of the oldest of India's traditions and has been traced back to somewhere between 2500 and 1800 BCE. The bulls used this the bulls used in this sport are raised wild and special care is taken to feed and exercise them to make them strong and sturdy for the fight. The men are not allowed to carry any weapons meanwhile the bulls horns are sharpened. Yeah. I'll stick to football. <laughs> cow trampling ritual after racing with the buffaloes and facing down raging bulls here is another one of the most bizarre customs of india this one requires you to be trampled by cows 
among the stranger Indian traditions um, as Gudwardan Puja, Puja, as performed by some villagers in Madha Pradesh, calls for people to lay face down on the ground while a group of cows run over them at full speed. The livestock are painted in bright colors and decorated with bells and garlands. This ritual is said to bring the participants good luck, prosperity, and is said to have been in practice since the era of the royals. So this is what I was thinking when I, everything seems so violent and all under good luck. It just seems to me that somebody at some point in time was like, hey, You'll be good luck if you'll be good luck if you hit yourself over the head with a stick for four or five hours and then let bulls trample over you. It sounds like somebody was like playing a practical joke on somebody for like their own amusement. Not saying that that's what it was, but it just like they're all so violent. Right. So, you know, there's a difference between like bona fide, like. And superstition, according to some of the teachers I study with, is like a huge problem mm-hmm. in India. What, like, like, what side are were your uh, teachers on? More like ritual or superstition? Like, and what would these be in your mind? Ritual There's or superstition? Yogis who are talking about where some of this stuff comes from and how it's just superstition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how do you think they got started? Because that's kind of like, well, I guess what I was just saying, like, I'm always fascinated on like how people, because again, like there's still, it's not like just a couple people would have got involved. Like how influential were people back in the, in the day to say like, Hey, if you guys lay down face down on the ground and let these bulls run over you, like that'll bring you good luck. Like, how influential would you have to be to convince people of that? And for it to catch it's on. Stupid than some of the stuff that happens today. What would you compare it to that happens today? Just it in for for insight. I'm afraid to say because <laughs> it's very controversial. It's very controversial, my first thought. Why you just why you spit it out and then if you want me to edit it out afterwards, I will. It's not an exact analogy either, but it's just it's just as nonsensical to me mm-hmm. as um, what is it? I'm super curious now. The thing that popped in my head, I have to say, is. Like, and now more things are coming. <laughs> but the first thing that popped in my head, and it, 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 unfortunately, everything in the United States is somewhere on the spectrum of political duality. We've somehow managed to, you know, take morality and politics and screw them all up. So my first thought was, how some people think it's okay for young 
kids to be able to go into a store and buy an AR-15 mm -hmm. and a shit ton of magazines to go with it. Mm -hmm. Given the track record in this country, I don't think that's a great, but some people feel as though that's perfectly okay. And to me, that's just as ridiculous as thinking you're going to have good luck if the cows run over you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's just as insane to me. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. It's not an exact analogy, but... I, I can see your correlation between two things that just don't make sense to you. Like, I think that's the, the root of it. Like, from, like, personal conjecture, you just look at both of them being nonsensical. I love cows. I love paint. I love prosperity. Yeah. I love good fun, gatherings. But do you love a broken spine? <laughs> Is no, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, do you love... Do you love the concept of having good luck for the rest of your life as a paraplegic? Like, that's like in my mind where I go with this stuff. You know, it's like, how much good luck would there be now with you having traumatic brain injury? Or like, if your arm is broken in two spots, is that extra good luck? You know, like, it, like, Probably. yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's double. That's See, double duty. And this, and this is what makes me want to travel the world. I'm like, I know I'm reading this. You have to go look for that. It's I not got it. You see, like traveling through it. Like you would need to know where that was. And oh, yeah. It was and get access to that small village that yeah. was doing that. Like that's not the norm. Yeah. Like these but if but, I was going to India, I would go definitely around a time so i could even have a hope of bearing witness to some of these events because it's like like i don't even know like i i'm pretty sure as a relatively desensitized male i can watch people get trampled by cows for the sake of curiosity but as a father i do really? not <laughs> i'm just saying i'm picking and choosing here on these examples we've okay. gone through so far that I could probably sit there and watch that because I would also go watch the running of the bulls in Spain. Which to me, it's like, well, you might have already laid down on the ground and you're going to get trampled. You know, but there's also some other people who are going to get trampled in the running of the bulls too. And I would go watch that. So I'm like, would, would I watch that? Probably. But as a father, could I watch people launch babies off a rooftop hoping these people catch it? There's, I, there's just some things where I'm like, I just hope that shit's not real. You know, like, I, I just, like, the, it just doesn't, it makes my skin crawl. Like, I, just, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. Um, I would definitely not feel comfortable watching it. Um, you know, like, I classify that in the category of, like, you know, going to Thailand and seeing, like, grown men have sex with, like, 12-year-old boys or something like that. It's like, I know that stuff happens. What I willingly... Like if I was in an area and like I, I it's seeing some grown men from like Canada or the United States going over there for that purpose, like it just makes my skin crawl thinking about it. Like it just it grosses me up. Um, so like, um, but like I said, like it, it just there's some things like when I read this, this again, it's like what makes me want to travel the world of being like, does that really happen? Like, do these people really just lay on the ground? How many people lay on the ground? I want to see their face when they hear those bells dingling on the cows. 
knowing those cows are running for him. Like, I want to see, like, what are you thinking? Like, I want to talk to them before they do it and be like, like, what do you hope this is going to bring to you? And then after. I know, like, it's like, but this is like the fascinating part of like, why I think people who travel, like, just for a beach, in some nice weather, it's like, you can stay at home and go find a beach in some nice weather, like within your own country. Like, when I think of like traveling, like, like, I want to see, you know, some Vietnamese person put that big ass tarantula in their soup and like eat it while it's still alive. Like, I want to see that. And I want to ask them, like, what's going through your mind right now? when you take your first bite, like I, I want to know. And this falls into that same category for me. But um, um, let's get into this next one, because this is one that I found interesting too. Uh, hanging by the hooks performed in uh, Kerala Kali temples. This is a shocking custom where dancers dress up like uh, Garuda, the Hindu Deity of Vishnu's eagle vehicle. Sorry, there's just a lot going on there. And hang themselves like eagles from a shaft with the use of hooks pierced into the flesh of their backs and thighs. The dancers who seem to be in, or the dancers who seem to be in a trance are hung after they complete a dance performed and are taken around the city in a colorful procession hanging from the hooks. Like, that I... Reminds me of the Native American sun dance. That's the first thing that I thought of, too, where they... Yeah, because yeah, they hook you... Like, it's to, like, a, a tree, right? Like, it's a tree in the, the pole. pole in the desert, and it's, like, super hot. You get dehydrated. And then there's, like, that um, square around the tree that once you fall from the hooks you have to stay with inside that square or something like that i don't know the whole custom behind it but um yeah there's always that trance like quality that you don't know if people were given something prior to it or what yeah which there's I, so many of these things like people that put like swords through their tongue and you know what i mean like and in uh, in this goes so like Things like that, but again, like you're like what you're talking about, like the like going through that ceremony was like a privilege. You know, um the um the First Nations um sun ceremony and stuff where like you're tied to that pole with those hooks on your body. Like like that wasn't something that you were forced to. Like that was a, a rite of passage, like as you know, like a, a warrior, I think it is, but it's just a rite of passage in, into something. But again, like I think it kind of goes back to like the sign of respect now like for like an older generation, would any younger generation do things like that? You know, because you'd have to have a lot of respect for your elders to be like, well, that doesn't necessarily seem like a great idea. I know you guys have done it in the past, but like really respecting like the value of the culture and your forefathers before you. Because, like, I'm into trying stuff, but being tied to a pole for days by the hooks in my back until my skin rips in the sun, can't eat or drink any water. Like, I don't know. Like, I like sitting in the sauna, but I don't like sitting in the sauna being tied to the roof by hooks. Like, it, like, there just seems like to me, like, there's this, 
how, again, I always come back to like, how do you get people to do these things? Like, how did they start? And who were the people that started these and were able to convince everybody else for generations to come that this these were a good idea? And this is how you achieved these moments of enlightenment or um, you gained favor with the gods? Or like, were, were people that fearful of the gods that they would do these things to gain favor potentially and then so then have have people in power always been leveraging fear to be able to get people to do things i would imagine so for the most part yeah like and again like some of these things almost just seem like they're amusement to somebody else like how yeah you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, number 10, the celebration of the menstrual cycle. One of the most unique customs of India, the Abu Bachi Mela, is an annual tantric festival organized at Gawati's Kamakaya Temple in June. For three days, the temple doors remain closed to pilgrims, only open on the fourth day, the three days are considered to be the time when the goddess Sati menstruates, according to the legend. Sati, who died after jumping into the fire after her father insulted the Hindu deity Shiva, was cut into pieces by Vishnu in an attempt to stop an angry Shiva from completing the Tandev Nirita, Dance of Destruction, which would have resulted in the destruction of the universe. Located atop a Ninanchal hill, the Kamakaya temple is where Sati's womb and genitals fell to the earth after being chopped into pieces. Well, there you have it. There's the menstrual cycle. Um, Playing with the spirits. This custom is followed by the Tulvas, the native Tulu speakers who reside in the Dakshina, Kannada, and Upti districts in Karnata and some of the parts of Kerala. Um, the word bota refers to spirits and kola means to play in Tulu. This ritual is the worship of spirits that protect the village from calamities, making them uh, prosperous. It's performed from December to January. Well, that I can get on board. This ver this ritual is a wonderful combination of storytelling, colors, costumes, dance, and music, and is its origin in nature worship. See, now that I could get behind. That sounds like a good time. Uh, number 12 and the final one. Fashion show for camels. The Pushkar Camel Fair is one of the truly unique customs in India where for five days camels are shaved, dressed up, paraded, entered into beauty contests and races, and finally traded. Several musicians, dancers, acrobats, magicians, and snake charmers also participate in the fair to entertain the crowds. The fair is held every year in November during the Kartik Purnima full moon um, in the town of Pushkar and brings together thousands of camels, cattles, and horses. This is one of the many traditions in India that is fun to watch. That does sound fun to watch to me. Sounds very much like what we do with horses in, uh, in North America. 
Um, reading through these, and I know it's kind of slightly different context. I just couldn't find an exact parallel. But then I reverse engineered it to see if I could find some traditional Chinese, more violent traditions. Um, and I couldn't. What do you think is the reason why? Like, they're both kind of like, you know, when we look at like Ayurveda and we look at TCM, like, you know, they're both very much around um, like harmony and balance and peace and respecting things. And, you know, they're not violent. Um, but then we get into like these traditions that are ultra violent. And then we have a, another with traditional uh, Chinese culture that seemingly didn't have very many violent uh, traditions at all. Like, what's your take on that? That is pretty violent. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought of it like that. But yeah, you're right, though. Like, that is... Um, it's abusive. Ah, yeah. I see that image in my mind, and it is forever burnt in my brain. And I wish I had never seen that before, to be honest. Yeah, the lotus petal, lotus flower foot thing. But, um, like, outside of that, like, I didn't, I didn't find anything that represented a whole lot of like violent acts for to gain favor for anything. Like it seems like with like traditional Chinese culture, it was more like the things that seem strange, you know, to me or to us now, not, and I don't mean us as in you and I, but just in general Western culture that um, they were more in the ways of healing the body, like very, very, interesting ways of healing the body but then when i found here like it didn't seem like outside of yoga practices there was a lot of like because there there's multiple examples of ones like this this is just kind of one that had a nice balance between violent ones and non-violent ones that's why i picked this one and uh but there's a lot of really really intense um violence of a lot of practices in india which I didn't really know about, which kind of shocked me. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess this begs the question to me in my mind, like at the same time, all these really violent acts were going on is the same time when yogis were perfecting, you know, the, the practice of yoga and peace and harmony. Like, how do you think these two worlds were synonymous with the same regions? Perhaps those things were incidences that drove some of the villagers in those places to pursue mm -hmm. going off of being an ascetic. Yeah. Now who knows? Do these, this is why, like, I just, my curiosity in my mind just wants to know so bad. It's just not, it's not widespread, you know? It's an entire continent, and those are like tiny, one temple here, one temple there. It's like these remote places where these things are happening. Wouldn't that be interesting to, to actually visually map that out, like where the temples are versus where a lot of these traditional, really violent um, ceremonies and practices took place, and whether or not that they're either very parallel you know, because then people were like, this is, I don't want to do this. So I'm going to find this other way of life. So like, they're very close or 
if they're completely, you know, on like, you know, like they're very far away from each other. Like they didn't basically were kind of maybe generally unaware of, you know, like both traditions going on while they were synonymous at the, or they were running parallel at the same time. I, I don't know. It'd be really interesting to be able to visually map that out. A more widespread tradition would be the, the wife throwing herself on the funeral fire of her husband or being thrown there. Yeah. Which that's wild too. I came across that one. Maybe you can explain that for people who've never, uh, never heard that one before. Um, the, the belief in some families is that if your husband passes, that you are supposed to join him. And when he, his body is being burned, if you do not willingly climb into the flames, someone puts you there. And I mean, there were cases of that when I was in India, it was on the front page of the newspaper, just there'd always be like some weird little blurb pertaining to something terrible like that, or parents selling their children or whatever it was. Yeah. There's always some kind of a thing like that in the paper, almost every day. Wow, that's just like, and th this is like where we live in this, this really interesting time here where, because I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday too, that like you can actually, if you wanted to watch open slave auctions in other countries in the Middle East, like on the internet, like right now, like there actually legitimately might be one happening right now for the same reason why there actually legitimately might be a woman being thrown into the fire that her husband is in because he passed away, which he might have got trampled by a bull because he was laying on the at ground a at a festival. <laughs> like, like this is where you just have to kind of like oh, stop. <laughs> yeah. Like how much good luck would that be for the wife of the guy who got his head stepped on by one of the cows as he was laying down on the ground and then you know, he dies and then she has to throw herself in the fire because traditionally he has to lay on the ground. And I wonder if, if I wonder if in those villages, if it would be a sign of disrespect to your family, if you would tarnish the family name, if you didn't lay down on the ground and let the cows run over you, because, you know, like that, like bringing family name shame in India is a huge, um, is a huge thing to take into consideration as a child, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you have like three or four generations of the same family living in the same house. Can, can you imagine the family pressure you would feel in like a really traditional Indian home where there's three or four different or three or four generations of the same family living in, in one home? Like it just seems, uh, maybe some guys lay down on the ground because they want to be the guy that gets his head stepped on. I have absolutely no idea. Oh my God. Yeah. It's wild. Like these things really, but doesn't it make you want to like, look, cause when I read these things, I'm like, cause I thought the same thing too. I'm like, like, are guys piled on top of each other? Like, are you trying to be the guy that's underneath another guy or does everybody have to go kind of shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip on the ground? Like, are you allowed to cover your head with your hands? Like, can you wear a coconut as a helmet? Like, like, what are the, what are the faux pas here? Like, what can you get away with? <laughs> wear a coconut. Yeah. But um, not not as like I think the thing is when I read through these compares to the the traditional Chinese 
ones or traditional Chinese culture ones is they're they're in your face in a little bit different of a way where they almost seem so wild that it's hard to believe. Like I can see somebody drinking crystallized pee pretty easily, but I find it really hard to believe somebody would lay down on the ground and let let cows trample them. So it's like my mind doesn't even interpret them the same way. Like they're not as, even though they're probably w- more wild, worse off than you know some of the um, the Chinese ones that we went through. They, my mind doesn't perceive them the same way because they almost don't even seem real. That's what makes me want to see these things firsthand. So, um, well, that's it. That's my list. I got we got through everything that I had wrote down on my list today and. Um, all these 12 points here on this website. And um, as always, I, I appreciate you taking your time out and chatting with me. Thank you. Have one. Thanks, Bridget.